0: This is Mission Control, Houston. Ignition sequence start. I've been preparing for this all my life. Here's Porter on hard and taking him to school. What a great play by Jay Shante. K.J. Martin climbed Bobong Mountain. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. And you've seen tonight that we, we fought together, we stayed together, and it's about damn time, man. Six, five, four, three, two, one.
1: What is up and welcome to another episode of Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, part of the Locked on Podcast Network, your team every single day. Today's episode is brought to you by Locker Room. Download the app and join myself and the Athletics' Ali Kambijani each week live to get in on the action. Locker Room, changing the way that we talk sports. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Gatlin, native Houstonian and partner at Apollo Media, all Houston, all original. Be sure to follow along on Twitter at JTGatlin, the show, of course, at Locked on Rockets and at Apollo HOU. Now, joining us for today's episode is the Houston legend himself, 40-year voice of your Houston Rockets, Mr. Bill Worrell. How's it going, Bill? It's good, Jackson. Good to be on with you. We are so excited to have you, Bill. You know, it's just been from, and I'm sure I can speak for so many Rockets fans when I say this, but your voice, just you have become such an all-encompassing icon for Houston sports but for specifically the Rockets and so this is going to be a great opportunity to you know get to know your journey a little bit better and and really kind of reflect on this incredible career that you've had. So are you ready to get to it? Let's go. All right so I I want to know just starting out how did you get into play-by-play? How did it all start? Uh, Well it started for me at uh, the University of Houston. Uh, I had um
0: gone out to the U of H and I had actually started. My father was a dentist. And so I was in uh, pre-med the first couple of years, but I was also on a baseball scholarship. So by getting into the second year of pre-med, I had a lot of labs in the afternoon (laughs) and my (laughs) baseball coach said, well, if you can't practice, you can't play. And uh, I had been looking, I I wasn't a big fan uh, of uh, blood. And so uh, when I got in that second year of pre-med I decided maybe this isn't a good idea for me uh I ought to get into broadcasting which is what I really want to do so uh I I told my dad and and uh I changed my major KUHT was on campus that was channel eight KUHF enabled me to if I was industrious enough and wanted to set up for uh, college baseball games or freshman football games I could broadcast those uh it was uh very primitive. Uh, sometimes we got on the air, sometimes we didn't get on the air. But it was a good way for me to, to start and, and get my feet wet. And it gave me a great opportunity uh, to make mistakes while I was still in college rather than make them later on.
1: When was the moment for you, Bill, that, that you went from, okay, yeah, this is pretty fun to, you know what, I could really see myself doing this as a career.
0: I think uh, that started a little later when uh, I started getting a request from. Uh, there was there were three major channels, and as uh, at the time, Channel Two, which was the NBC affiliate, uh, there was Channel Eleven and Channel Thirteen. Eleven was CBS, and, and Thirteen ABC, and they didn't have the manpower uh, to cover the college sports, and so they found somebody out there. They would call out there to KUHF or KUHT, and I was recommended. So uh, for about three years, that was my arm that held the microphone for all three of the stations. Uh, uh, I would ask the questions. You would see my arm on television holding the mic, and uh, I did that for a couple of years uh, for all three, actually, and uh, basically Channel 2. And that's what gave me the idea that maybe I could do this.
1: I guess, looking back, you know, who, especially as you were kind of starting out, really, you talk about getting your feet wet, who helped you the most, you know, along your career as you were kind of getting things started?
0: Uh, I had a couple of professors uh, who really worked hard. You know, those are the guys at KUHF, uh, Dr. Cochran was out there who would come and, on campus on the weekends and open up the studios for us uh, so that we could work on our craft. Uh, These are very unsung people who never get the credit. Uh, They work behind the scenes. Uh, Dr. Welch. uh, uh, There there are many different professors I had that enabled me to go and work on my own. Uh, They would open up the shop not just for me, but for other kids too that that were out there that wanted to work. And we had a group of about seven or eight. Not everybody wanted to be on the air. Some guys wanted to be behind the camera. Some guys wanted to produce and direct. So we had our own little group, and we had a lot of help from our professors. and And they don't get enough credit uh, for helping us. But you got to have a great teacher too. You have you have to have somebody. Uh, who will provide you the leadership
1: and the ability to get in and do the work and make the mistakes and learn the craft. I 100% agree with you, Bill. So I'm, uh, thankfully, also, you know, we, we share uh, a a school in the fact that we're both uh, alumni from the University of Houston. And I wouldn't be where I'm at without the help of my professors there. I, you know, getting started with the school newspaper was such an exciting thing for me. And that was prompted by one of my professors. And um, you know, reaching out and, you know, getting more ingrained in the Houston sports community. Uh, first time I met Matt Thomas was because a professor suggested, hey, reach out, talk to the people in the industry you want to get into. So I completely agree with you there. Um, I, I want to know how much of your on-air personality, you know, is influenced by maybe the sports casters that you listened to growing up.
0: I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh I listened to so many different broadcasters. Uh, I first was able to listen to Cardinal broadcasts uh, on the radio uh, when I was growing up, uh, influenced me with Jack Buck and, and uh, you know, there was Harry Carey. There were different uh, people uh, who I listened to on the radio. Uh, then uh, with the Houston Buffs, uh, we were able to listen to a few po- I, I remember actually Gene Elston was the first broadcaster I got interested in. Uh, he did the game of the day for Mutual on the radio. And I see, I'm going way back. I'm back in the sixties now when this was back in the early sixties when I was just 17 and 18 years old. And so I'm way ahead of you guys on this. We were, um, we were back in black and white television. Uh, so in other words, uh, these were the guys I was able to listen to. We didn't have, you have to remember, you have to go back and remember I had a a radio and that was it. And the TV uh, was not, would only get the local channels, So you didn't get a lot of national broadcasting. So I picked up a lot of stuff from guys around here, but I think Gene Elston was the first one I listened to. And that was the biggest thrill I had later when I, did Astros baseball that I was able to work with Gene Elson. I had to pinch myself that he was actually uh, sitting next to me. And I was, I was calling games with him because he had a great effect on me. He was, he was great at telling you where the ball was uh, when he was doing radio because he had to describe the action to you. You were listening to him, but then he also had this incredible ability that once he did, he slid over to the other seat and did television. He was able to let you see where the ball was. You did, he didn't have to tell you where everything was anymore. He allowed you to see it. And then he just kind of kept the game moving. And, and, and I always uh, like to watch him work. And he probably had the most effect on my play-by-play calling. Personality-wise, that's strictly up to the broadcaster. That comes out in your broadcast. Uh, the way you are, the way you are, are with other people, comes out. You can't hide that, and you don't want to. Uh, you don't. You don't want to uh, look at it. Vince Scully told me something one time, and this is another guy. I don't like to name drop too much, but these were guys that were my heroes growing up, and and when I did Astros baseball, it was the first chance I got to meet. Ben Scully. And uh, I asked him the same question you just asked me one time, who who influenced your early years? You know, and he started with the Dodgers when they were in Brooklyn before they moved to L.A. <laughs> and he said, well, there were a couple, uh, Red Barber and a few guys back in the old days uh, that he listened to, but he didn't like to listen to other broadcasts and he didn't listen to other broadcasters. He wanted his style to be strictly his style. If he was successful with it, fine. If not, you know, let it ride. So he told me, don't listen to other people. Let your own personality guide you uh, in the business. And then the fans will let you know whether they like it or not. And um, so that's kind of the way I've always been. I've listened to other guys and I've their personality and calling a game just wasn't mine, so I couldn't be something I wasn't, and I would recommend that to all young people:
1: be who you are. I love that. That is incredible advice, Bill. Um, you know, I, I and I think that obviously, obviously, it's worked out pretty well. So I, I think yeah. I, I think the the feedback from the fans has been pretty uh, pretty solid. So I, I think you've got you know uh, had a great plan of attack in regards to that, but um, just you know. If you're looking back on it, when you started did did you ever imagine that you would grow to become as synonymous with Houston sports as you are today?
0: Oh no uh, back when you start out, it's just you are just trying to get from Monday to friday uh, <laughs> and then and then Saturday and sunday and about your thinking into the future when you're young really doesn't go go past, uh, the, the next year, uh, you, you have no ability to think that far ahead. You're just trying to get a show on the air. You're working from day to day, week to week. Um, I never really gave it any thought. Um, I really didn't give it any thought until the last week when I announced my retirement, that's when people I hadn't talked to in years were calling me and we were bringing up old memories and, and, uh, some things I didn't remember some things I did uh, so it was a very eventful week the week I retired but I think up until that point you're just worried about game to game <laughs> your preparation uh, doing the game and uh, you don't think about anything else you don't think about the future when you're young uh, there's never an end in sight and then when you when you get older you're immersed in your craft and and you're trying to do the best you can and you you never think about retirement when, when you get to be my age, I'll be 77 next week. And so, uh, I just felt like that at this time of my career, uh, it was time to move aside and let the youngsters take over and, and you get that feeling and you know, when the time comes, you don't, you want to go out on your own is what I'm saying, Jackson, you want to, you don't want to be shoved out the door. You don't want to be where uh, you can't call a game anymore. You want to still be at the top of your craft, or are close to it. And then uh, if you're lucky enough, step aside on your own terms. And that's what I was able to do. And I was very fortunate.
1: Coming up, we're going to revisit some of those moments throughout the years, uh, some of the, the standout memories, as well as some of uh, your partners in the booth, Bill. And we're going to get there after a quick message for our friends over at Built Bar. Look, if you've never had a protein bar that you actually enjoy, you have to check out Built Bar. They have so many incredible flavor options to choose from, raspberry, Double chocolate, coconut, coconut brownie chunk, my personal favorite, salted caramel. You really can't go wrong with any of the flavors on their menu. And the best part about these protein bars is they're basically candy bars that are jam-packed with protein. Every single bar is low-cal, low-sugar, high-protein, high-fiber, great if you're on a keto diet. So go to BuiltBar.com and use promo code LOCKED15 to get 15% off your very first order. Again, that's promo code LOCKED15 for 15% off at BuiltBar.com. And continuing on here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball, chatting with, of course, the great Bill Worrell. Now, Bill, tell us a little bit about your relationship with Calvin Murphy and what it was like sharing the booth with him.
0: Well, it was crazy because uh, when I I came, uh, first started covering the Rockets as a sportscaster uh, at Channel 2, uh, Calvin and Rudy were the first two players I met. We were all the same age. We were good friends. He was um, outrageous then, you know. He was uh, he was a tremendous talker, uh, and a lot of things he said actually made sense to me and uh, and Rudy. And uh, uh, it was it was just a fun time to grow up. The Rockets were brand new. This was even before Moses Malone came along. Uh, but they were brand new in town. Uh, and, and so, uh, I got to know Calvin very well. Uh, and so at the end of his broadcasting or at the end of his playing career, I suggested to him that, that maybe he ought to think about broadcasting. And he said, no, because, uh, he really wanted to go on at the time. I think, uh, broadcasting was in its infancy as far as players were concerned doing the broadcasting. so, he was making so much money on clinics. He's a great clini- clinician. If you ever watch him with kids or young people, you know how well he teaches a game of basketball. So he went around the world with uh, the NBA and uh, different coaches, and they would teach clinics, and he would come back. And, and I think only after he'd been out of basketball for a couple of years did he, did he realize that maybe he would like to stay close and stay close to the game. So I approached him about uh, doing uh, a possible color for Rockets basketball. And I'd had different partners, Tom Misalki, who uh, had uh, been a coach here uh, with the Rockets for a long time. And John Egan, who was one of the first coaches for the Houston Rockets. In fact, he played a couple of years. Mike Newland did a couple of games. McCoy McLemore. Uh, I had a good run with McCoy. Um, and then – after McCoy left, it was time to pick a new partner. So I suggested it to Calvin and uh, the rest is history. Uh, he was a little stiff. I'll, I'll tell you this, uh, what an interesting story about Calvin. Uh, when we started, the uh, HSE wanted us to wear blue blazers and gray slacks. And so Calvin did that at their request. But he was very dull the first couple of games. He, he wasn't Calvin Murphy. And he, he came up to me after the second game and he said, Bill, he says, I can't wear this blue blazer. This just, you know, I said, Well, I thought you were awfully quiet over there. He said, Let me wear my clothes. Can I wear my clothes? And uh, I went uh, to Jack Stanfield over at uh, HSE and I said, Jack, we got to let Calvin be himself. And, uh, you know, this blue blazer ain't going to work for him. And once we, we allowed him to wear his own stuff, uh, his personality, seemed to come right through the clothes onto the screen. And he was able to be himself. And we um, we clicked from then on and took off. And And I, I was smart enough at the time to figure out that this was really the Calvin Murphy show. And if I was real smart, uh, I would kind of let him do his thing and I'd kind of support him and then dra- dra- uh, drag him back every now and then when he got out there a little too far. But that's when I first learned in broadcasting that it's not the individuals who make the show. A lot of times, when you have a partner, uh, if your partner's really got a great personality and great insight, you let him run with it and you become a team. And not just, it, it just wasn't me and Calvin Murphy, it was Bill Warrell and Calvin Murphy. And if uh, Calvin got most of the credit, that's okay. They were watching us. And so our rating skyrocketed and uh, it was the most successful 12 or 13 years I ever spent on the air and the most fun I might have.
1: I, just from you know an outsider's perspective, looking in, the idea of doing anything for that amount of time with Calvin Murphy sounds both exciting and daunting a little bit. I'm sure that there were some moments that were challenging along the way, but um, and it kind of it kind of harkens back to what you said earlier, right? About needing to be yourself, right? To to yes. let your personality shine through. And it sounds like when Calvin you know was able to finally do that you know y'all hit the ground running didn't look back um talk about you two you've, you know obviously clyde and matt you know guys that you know you called games for and then sharing the booth with them down the line what's that kind of like
0: it's uh it's just uh what we were talking about with calvin you had to find a place like uh, matt didn't really want to do it i approached matt when it was time uh Uh, We needed a new partner, and I'd had my eye on Matt a long time because he was a smart player. He played for a lot of really great coaches. He'd had a lot of injuries in his career, so he had to adapt his game. You know, we kid him about his lack of jumping ability. Actually, he was when he had two good wheels, he was uh, a white man really could jump. I mean, Bullard was really (laughs) – he he could get up into the air, and, uh, you know, he was a good player. He was on a lot of great – junior teams, uh, college, uh, junior Olympic teams. And he worked with all the great players. So, uh, he knew the game, he learned it. He had to adjust his game. He became a three point shooter. So he knew the game well enough, but after he retired and he got married and started raising a family, he wasn't sure whether he wanted to get back on the road again. So I, we really had to talk him into it, but once he committed, uh, it took him about a year to get going. And, uh, Then he had more ideas, being a very smart guy and being more used to this media. I'm sitting here in front of you today in a media I don't understand, but Matt grew up in it. So he was able to take his uh, experiences to another level in terms of how to look up a new statistic. You know, Matt's really good at the new statistics. I, I always joke with him. You know, he says three is better than two. Well, of course it is. I know I know that it's more than two. He says three is more than two. I understand that. Uh, he looks at players differently, grades them differently. Uh, I always looked at a guy, and I would be able to tell you whether he could play or not. Uh, Matt would give you all the statistics on where he could shoot from on the court and how he could help the team, and the new stats uh, became something that he was very interested in. So uh, it was taking that and incorporating it into what i knew and uh, we were able to get on several arguments on the air about whether you should take three point you know i used to tell matt all the time i understand that about taking the three point shot but late in the game when you're not making it why not take a two to keep the scoreboard clicking and i would always have that argument with him why don't we why don't we take a little easier shot if the three's not going in and that was my argument once we got to the playoffs because they're there for three or four years we you know like I remember one playoff game when Ariza went over 17 of uh, on three point shots and it was a game where I felt like if we could have gotten inside gotten in the paint a little bit scored uh, we could have kept the scoreboard moving so these are things that we used to argue about all the time and have a good time with
1: you know, I, I, I've I've got to bring this up, Bill, and I, you can you can blame my dad for this one. He says it's hands down one of the funniest things that he's ever heard, and I'm inclined to agree with him. But the moment that Clyde Drexler said, "It's like clubbing baby seals,"
0: mm.
1: what was running through your mind when that happened live on the broadcast?
0: <laughs> well, I thought we were all going to be kicked off the air. <clears throat> it's a it's a term you hear on the golf course some, and Clyde plays a lot of golf, a lot more than uh, the rest of us. And so uh, that was kind of uh, something that you would say on the golf course, if you had somebody you could beat all the time. And uh, so that just jumped out of his mouth, and I looked over at him, and he didn't even realize what he'd said. And uh, I looked at Matt, and Matt was looking at me, and I thought, well, it's going to be our last broadcast with somebody else after this. And uh, when we went into a timeout, I said, "Clyde, did you realize what you just said?" And uh, fortunately for Clyde Drexler, he's Clyde Drexler. Yeah, Jackson, if that had been just you and me saying that, we'd been out of broadcasting. Uh, but Clyde's dear friend was Leslie Alexander, who owned the team, and he decided to overlook it. So when everybody called Leslie about the panic about what are we going to do? What are we going to do? Uh, Leslie said nothing. So we nothing. He's Clyde.
1: He's good. <laughs> so you got a pass on that one. I like it. I like it. I, I just, I had to know, I appreciate you sharing that. It, it, and again, we can, we can blame my dad for that one. He was like, if you're talking to Bill, you got to ask him about that story. But <laughs> <laughs> um, now I, I'm sure we'd need a whole weeks worth of shows to do it true justice, but take us through some of your favorite moments from the days with Hakeem Olajuwon.
0: Wow. Uh, One of the fascinating things for me is I remember um, when um, Jim Nance, who was out uh, at the U of H at the time, said, you got to see this kid that just came out here. Uh, He's from... Lagos, Nigeria, and he's got a little baby hook shot, and that's all he's got. He he didn't know anything about basketball. He had a soccer background, so he knew absolutely. He had no offensive moves whatsoever. I went out and watched him, and I I I remember telling him, I said, uh, "This guy's not going to mount to a hill of beans. I mean, this guy's he can't play basketball. He has no shot. He doesn't even know the terminology. He can barely speak the language." And, uh, so that shows you what my early, uh, leanings were, but, but Guy Lewis said that this guy's got great athletic ability. He's got super feet because he played, uh, soccer. And so Guy recognized all these traits about him. And then he just started developing like gangbusters. Once he learned the rules, he learned, uh, how to move. They taught him some moves and, and, he had some great college games. Um, now, remember, I keep reminding people I was went to school with Elvin Hayes, who I still think to this day was one of the greatest basketball players I ever saw. And so I had seen Elvin Hayes in the game of the century in 1968 in the Astrodome when he beat Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in UCLA to stop that winning streak. Uh he he could do it all he could score he could block shots and so i had seen a great big man uh, in houston in elvin hayes so Akeem lajuwan didn't impress me whatsoever when i first saw him and this is uh, a tribute to akeem the way he was able to develop his game uh, by the time that he became a junior at the university of houston Look what he had done. He 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 had no game whatsoever when we first saw him on campus, and uh, he came to be that great Akeem Elizurwan. And then when he got to the pros, he had to learn a little facets of the game. He he uh, he uh, would have to learn to rebound. He would he would have to to learn to. Uh, he already knew how to block shots. Uh, it's just it's just hard to. Uh, When you ask me about great games, I I immediately think of the quadruple-double that he had. You know, only four players had ever done that. Actually, three at the time. And uh, so he did that one night, and the NBA came back the next day and said, uh, we're not going to count one of the assists. Uh, You gave him an assist. So a month later, he did it again. And uh, this time, they couldn't take it away from him. Uh, That was a great moment. Uh, I'll never forget the moment against uh, David Robinson that he absolutely dominated David. David got the MVP award handed to him before the series started in San Antonio. And then Akeem handed that trophy, uh, actually stole it away from him. David said after the series was over, he said, man, that's as good as I can play. He said, I was absolutely destroyed. And uh, so that was probably Akeem's finest moment from an individual standpoint. But I think the key to Elijah Juan was learning to trust his teammates. And, you know, he he was so good he could take a game over by himself. And so he lost a lot of close games early in his career because of his inability to trust his teammates and make that extra pass. So what happened to him uh, when he got better teammates and Rudy surrounded him with three-point shooters Uh, You had Mario Eli in the corner. You had Kenny Smith out front. You had uh, uh, Sam Cassell. You had Robert Ory, Big shot Bob was just being born at the time. And so when Akeem discovered and Matt Bullard, uh, when Akeem discovered that he had guys who could make shots and then he found out how that made his game easier, because when they made those shots, then teams had to take their defenses and move them out a little bit uh, to stop that three point shot. And he goes, the light goes off and he goes, man, he says, look at all this room I've got in here. So, you know, that that's part of developing and being a basketball player. And so those were little things that he had to learn. And uh, that's why sometimes those great players don't win a championship. You know, he was uh, 30 over 30 years old uh, when he won uh, his first championship. And so then he did back to back which is almost impossible to do so there're just so many stories about about the uh, i remember in the cleveland airport uh, we didn't know what to call his shot you know he had a he had a jump hook he had the dream shake to the baseline and and so we didn't call it the dream shake i didn't know what to call it so in the cleveland airport i'm saying dream we got to give that shot a name what do you think And he said, why not call it the Dream Shake? And I said, the Dream Shake. So he had been carrying this idea around in his head the whole time, and he gave, you know, it was so gracious of him to let me take the credit because everybody kept saying Warrell called it the Dream Shake. Well, really, Akeem named it, and he let me use it. So I guess I'll have to give it back to him now.
1: I love that. That's it. we we got the origins of the dream shake from from the man himself. I love it. Um and you you talk about, you know, being in the airport with dream and just, you know, throughout the years, you know, you you travel with the team and you really get to be so well acquainted with these players. You know, who are who are some of your your standout favorites from over the years? You know, you just little interactions, the guys that you really got to get close to, you know, as you're traveling with the team and calling these games and, you know, who stands out to you? Well,
0: Let me, let me shock your system one more time. You see, when I broke in with the Rockets in 1980, I was the same age as a lot of those guys. We were all good friends. And so, as I said before, Rudy T and myself and uh, Calvin Murphy, we were friends. We were like brothers. We hung out together. And then uh, these other players start coming, uh, 10 or 15 years later. And they're like my sons, you know, and then the games I'm doing now for these 20 year olds, when I just retired, they could be my grandsons. Now think about that for a minute, Jackson, you're, you you got your friends you run with, then you got, you know, you got to raise these players who could be your sons. And then here at the end of my career, they could be my grandsons. And, and that's the way I lump them in. So, my favorite players were the ones I could hang out with. And that was early in my career. Uh, as I became older, uh, then I became more of a mentor to some of these younger players would always ask you questions because, uh, you weren't a coach. So they would ask you about travel and you try to tell them, try to help them out, but they were young and they wouldn't listen to you. And so, uh, they had to experience things on their own. So, uh, I guess Mario Elie was one of my favorites. I loved Mario because when he came in, he was tough. Uh, he had played on all the, co- uh, the continents. He'd even played professional basketball in Ireland. I didn't even know they had a professional league in Ireland. Uh, so he was tough. He knew what it took to get there, and he didn't mind telling Akeem and some of those other guys to stuff it. If uh, if they weren't playing the way he wanted them to weren't, You know, he played every game a hundred percent. Sam Cassell was another one. He brought, he brought this personality, this smile. He, he, uh, he made basketball fun for the team. Uh, Robert Ory was one of my favorites. Uh, Akeem and Clyde, uh, were one of my favorites. Uh, so, you know, they're all, it's just hard to, if you, if you came up with a player, I'd, I could tell you, yeah, they're—they uh, were all my, like my kids, uh, my grandkids. You know, we got—we got guys on the rockets now that just go by initials. They were, <laughs> Kpj. They were—they were born in 2000, Jackson. 2000.
1: Can you imagine that? Hey, I—I I feel, I feel old talking old. to pe- I feel old talking to people who were born in 2000. So. <laughs> Well, I was born in 1944.
0: See, that, that it's a, it's just a different generation, and it's fun to watch them. When you, when you, and and I'm just trying to say to you the progression. If you got into the business tomorrow, and you were doing games, uh, you would immediately identify with these guys your age. But if you work as long as I do, then all of a sudden you become the mentor, and these players are younger and and that's the way my career was it just it just kept i just kept hanging around and hanging around and these new guys would keep coming in and they're all my favorites for different reasons yeah
1: well we're going we're going to find out a little bit more about Rudy T here in just a second but first a quick message from our friends over at betonline.ag BetOnline is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all of your sports betting needs. Baseball season is in full swing, and you can track all of that action over at BetOnline. We've got NBA playoffs here. You can also do NHL, UFC, you name it. BetOnline probably has it. So before the next pitch, head over to BetOnline. Use promo code LOCKEDON to receive a 50% welcome bonus on your very first deposit. Again, that's promo code LOCKEDON, L-O-C-K-E-D-O-N, for a 50% welcome bonus. Bonus on your very first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. And another message from our friends over at rockauto.com. Look, chain stores have different price tiers for professional mechanics and do-it-yourselfers, which isn't exactly fair, right? Rockauto.com's prices are the same for everybody and they're always reliably low. The, the, the catalog, it's unique, it's easy to navigate. You can quickly see every single part available for your vehicle and choose the brand's specifications and prices that you prefer. They've got everything from engine control modules and brake parts to tail lamps, motor oil, and even brand new carpet. So whether it's for your classic or your daily driver, get everything you need in just a few easy clicks delivered directly to your door. So go to rockauto.com right now and see all the parts available for your car or truck. And be sure to write locked on in their how did you hear about us box so that they know that we sent you. Amazing selection, reliably low prices, all the parts your car will ever need. rockauto.com. And final segment here at Locked On Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball. Continuing our conversation now with the great Bill Worrell. Now, Bill, we, we kind of touched on this briefly a moment ago, but and you usually tee up Matt for this one, but how do you feel about how NBA basketball has progressed since you started calling games? Do you do you like where the game is at right now?
0: Uh yes. I, I, I do. Um I, I look back uh, at basketball and ha- how it has changed. Uh, there were so many big men when I came into the league, guys who could really dominate in the paint. Uh, even before I came in, I followed Wilt Chamberlain and Bill Russell and uh, all of the all of the great big men that they had to actually change the rules for. You know, Wilt Chamberlain would purposely miss his free throw and just run into the lane and get it and put it back in for two. So they had to change, they had to change that rule. Uh, Then later on they had to widen the paint because Chamberlain would just stand the paint was very narrow at the at the time. And so Chamberlain would just stand under there and block everybody's shot. There was no three-second rule. So they had to change the rules again. So anytime people ask me who the greatest player of all time was, I say Will Chamberlain because When you have to change the rules for a guy, then he is absolutely the greatest. So I'm just trying to get the young people to visualize how the game was dominated uh, by the big man in the early years. And so the powers that come along say, "Okay, what can we do uh, to get this game going and, and not have it so foul prone and so rough and tough inside the paint? So they changed the rules a little bit on the touch fouls. Uh, then Michael Jordan came along. Dr. J was right before Michael Jordan. Uh, so that opened up the court a little bit and, and put the, the, the onus back on the small guy. I say, small guy, uh, Michael was six foot six. Dr. J was six foot eight. And these guys had a handle. They could go to the basket. They were fabulous dunkers. Uh, so each, each basketball, era uh is is really controlled by the players who play in it and during uh wilts and russell's time the big man controlled the game Uh, then when the players came along when uh uh, michael came along after dr j and then there was a uh you know finger roll at san antonio uh uh, george Gervin. Uh, you had all of these guys who could handle the ball, and so that 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 was that era. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, these guys control the basketball, and uh, they could move up and down the court. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was another one who who had the sky hook. So you just keep moving through eras of basketball, and and I can take you through those eras. And now we come to the time when the. Uh, overseers of the game said we need to open it up again and so let's take touch fouls out of the paint area so this was really tough because if you'll remember go back to the championship years when the Rockets beat the Knicks they were allowing hand checking and look at the scores 92 to 89 uh 89 to 87, these were the final scores between the Rockets and the Knicks because those two teams were so strong, they could put their hands on you and stop you. I know it was only supposed to be one hand at a time, but they could actually control uh, where you went with the ball defensively. So they said, let's get the hand check out of the game. And we went through a painful two years where every time you reached out and touched somebody 40 feet from the basket, uh, the whistle would blow. So we went through that. Uh, so that was, that was another era. So right now you're in the three-point era. You can't have touching. You've widened the court with teams taking 40 uh, to 42 threes a game. And we're going through that era. And uh, But who were the two MVPs this year in the league? You had Jokic and you had the big guy in Philadelphia, Embiid. There'll be one-two MVP awards. So it, here at the end of this season, it, the game has reverted back to the big guy. So, see, I can take you through all of these, the big guy into the uh, smaller guard. I can take you into three-point shooting into this era we're in now. But yet the big guy is still dominant. And so it just you just let basketball run its course. It's just like a river. You just—it uh, changes. It ebbs and flows, and and uh, you go through eras, and sometimes you don't even know it. And right now we're in the three-point shooting era, but that, that's going to change again.
1: Now, especially talking about the the progression of the league, Bill, we've also seen the league become you know much more inclusive and diverse over the years as well. And you look at the Rockets now with. Rafael Stone, Steven Silas in positions of leadership, and now Gretchen Shear taking over for Tad Brown, who's stepping down at the end of this season. You know, what does that, what does that say about the NBA watching, watching the, the league become more inclusive and diverse over the years?
0: Well, it's just uh, the way, it's a mirror of our society, uh, Jackson. It's the way we, it's the way we move. Um, uh, as our society gets more diverse, uh, as uh, people, uh, how do I put it, uh, are more, uh, are given more opportunities uh, in, in, uh, our in our government and in our citizenship and our, the way we live our lives, uh, that permeates into the leagues. Uh, uh, black Lives Matter became very important. And since uh, the majority of the players in the NBA are black, Uh, they decided, hey, it's time for us to step forward and not only be basketball players, but be citizens. What's good for our, what's good for America? What's good for our country? And so their beliefs have moved uh, into sports. And and there are a lot of people who want to keep politics out of sports. But that's impossible to do nowadays. If, if, If you, back in my day, when you had two newspapers in town, and that was it. You had no internet. You had no other way to communicate with people. Uh, It was easy to keep sports out of politics and vice versa, but that's not the case anymore. Everybody is a citizen. Everybody has a responsibility uh, to fairness. And I think the basketball players spoke out, Uh, baseball players uh, are starting to do it a little bit and football players also. So they're saying, they're saying we're also people. We're not just sports figures. Don't shut up and dribble. We don't want to shut up and dribble. We want uh, to express what we think is fair and just in our society. And so they're getting a voice and they're liking getting a voice. And so it's going to take a little adjustment period. I know some of the ratings are down a little bit. Some people say, ah, we don't want to watch so-and-so um, play basketball because he's too outspoken. Yeah. Well, you watch the ratings go back up during the playoffs when the games get better. They don't care who they're watching. They're watching basketball. But I think nowadays with all of the different varieties and ways to express yourself, you're going to see more of uh, uh, what the society does uh, incorporated into sports. And we're better for it, right? Yes, we are. We, We absolutely are because these people speaking out are very educated. They're not speaking out. I mean, they, they read the issues. Uh, uh, I was so proud of the NBA uh, after the George Floyd incident uh, because they said enough is enough. Uh, we're Americans, too. We want to we wanna get into the process. I'm old enough to remember the civil rights uh, marches with Dr. Martin Luther King, who came to the U of H one time. So I, I go all the way back to the 60s when the voting rights were passed. And here we are still fighting the same battles. We're talking about 50 years later. So I agree with the players. Enough is enough. Let's move on. Let's let's let our society uh, grow and nurture and let everybody
1: participate in democracy. Absolutely, 110%. Um, Bill, I I, I told you I was going to ask you for a Rudy T story, and I, I will preface it by saying, we are not under FCC regulations, so <laughs> you've got to regale us with with a good Rudy T story. And I'll I'll put the bar up pretty high. Matt Bullard's already shared a couple Rudy T stories, so you you've, you've really got to knock this one out of the park for us.
0: Well, the my favorite Rudy T story was when he first he first took over the Rockets. We were playing in Portland against the Trailblazers, and it was the first round of the playoffs and it was the best two out of best two out of three back in, back in the day. And, um, there was an official that was officiating the game and I won't mention his name because he's, he might have a, he might have a family member watching here, but he and Rudy, he, he he also refereed Rudy's games when he was a player and Rudy never liked him as a referee when he recruited, you know, when he, uh, refereed the games then and he sure didn't like him when he was a coach and he called it just made a terrible call because we played it back and it was terrible against us and Rudy got on him pretty good so in the third quarter it was very quiet because we had the lead and we were in Portland you know how loud that crowd could be and that that was in the smaller arena that was before the Rose Garden and uh, so the referee made a call and it went against us and Rudy yelled the length of the court, so-and-so, you are a mm mm, mm. And I, I can't tell you the word because it's the grossest. It's uh, the worst thing you can call a human being. And Calvin and I were sitting right behind him, and the crowd wasn't saying anything. And it was one of those weird times when, when Calvin and I weren't saying anything. That came through the headset so clear to our audience. I mean, it was, Calvin looked at me and I looked at Calvin and neither one of us wanted to say anything. And finally I said, strong words from Coach Tom Chanovich. <laughs> and Calvin lost it, absolutely lost it. And we, we introduced a commercial that wasn't even due to run because we couldn't talk anymore. We were laughing so hard. But it was heard by a lot of people. And and I I can't even tell you on this show what he said. But we laughed and we still laugh to this day. Every time we get together, that's the first story we tell. And uh, Rudy was just a and still is uh, one of my dear friends. And I love him to death, but he does have a vocabulary that needs reining in from time to time.
1: <laughs> Incredible. Great stuff. Uh, it, it, You know, I feel like to, to be an NBA head coach, you got to be having, having an extensive vocabulary probably helps in that regard a little bit. Um, and you speaking, know,
0: some coaches have an extensive vocabulary, but it narrows a lot when they're in the middle of the game.
1: <laughs> uh, speaking of head coaches, you know, Stephen Silas, you know, in that, in your final game, offers you the game ball. What did yeah. that mean to you, Bill? No, it meant, meant a lot uh,
0: because I've loved so many of the coaches we've had uh, with the Houston Rockets. I started out with Tom Neselke was, uh, was my first uh, coach for the Rockets and he got coach. you know, a lot of people forget he was NBA coach of the year one year uh, with the Houston Rockets. Um, uh, Del Harris came along and he was an assistant. Bill Fitch, uh, came along. He was legendary, uh, Rudy T and, and Don Chaney, a dear friend of mine still to this day, got NBA coach of the year. And then, uh, Charlie Thomas fired him the next year, uh, after an embarrassing game, uh, a loss at home. Uh, so Mike D'Antoni, a wonderful guy. So as you can tell, I've been around coaches and have known coaches who are probably the greatest in the game. And I see things in Stephen Silas. It's going to make him a great coach. Uh, I knew his daddy, Paul, pretty well. Uh, Stephen doesn't remember the first time we met. He was only about seven years old. He used to run out on the court before the games. And he was the ball boy. And, and uh, so when his dad was at Charlotte and his dad later you know went to Cleveland and and so people don't realize that Stephen coached LeBron his first season uh he had uh, uh, he had uh, oh, Steph I'm Curry wrong. briefly for a little huh? bit Steph Curry well, yeah he had uh Steph early in his career and you see how those players treat him with so much respect uh I I watch how players at the end of the season when the Rockets were having the terrible losing streak. But Jackson, they were in a lot of games. They would come back. They would get down by 20, 22, 24 points. And then they'd come back and be within four or five points late in the game, just couldn't finish it off. That tells you right there that that coach has complete control of that team, and those guys love him. They play hard for him. The Rockets were in a lot of games that they lost. And, and that's a tribute to Steven Silas. He's been around the game his whole life. But the best thing I like about Steven, he knows how to treat people. He is a people person, and players will fight and play hard for him. And he'll be only, he'll he'll attain the goals that he can only attain if the Rockets are lucky in the draft. If they get him players who can play, he has the ability to take those teams to a championship. And I truly believe that. That's not That's not coach speak or any of that BS about trying to help the Rockets. Steven Silas is going to be a hell of a basketball coach when his players get as good as he is, when he gets the type of players. And we'll see how lucky the Rockets get
1: in the draft. And when they don't have a million injuries and 30 different guys suiting up across one season. Well,
0: a lot of those injuries, had they been in the playoffs, a lot of those guys could have played. Uh, I think they didn't want to. They didn't want to mess with Christian because his ankle injuries are such that they want to get his ankle stronger for next season. Uh, with Wall, they just didn't want to get him hurt anymore because they don't know exactly how he plays into their plans. So these were these were easy decisions to make. The Rockets. <clears throat> the reason I, I I like what Rafael did. The Rockets owe it to the city of Houston to do the right thing. And people say, oh, they're tanking games. Well, they weren't tanking games. They just couldn't win games. And rather than try to win these games by making moves for average players or players at the end of their career with some experience, they did the right thing. And they lost at a time they have to in order to secure a top 14 uh, pick and get back as quick as they can. So they got two 20-year-olds who I think can play in this league for a long time. They've got a couple of other players who can play well in this league if surrounded by better players. So you're gonna have to bite the bullet for a couple of years and and get lucky because you folks don't remember uh, the Rockets had to win. We had to win a coin flip to get Ralph Sampson and we had to win a coin flip to get Hakeem Olajuwon. So how lucky is that? Uh, unfortunately, there are no Samsons or Elijah ones in this draft coming up. So, you know, it's
1: Cade Cunningham
0: or bust, I guess. But
1: <laughs> hey, but, I'm a, but I'm no, a little, but you can make the right decision. Uh, uh, you know, Evan Mobley, we'll see, we'll see about him. Jalen Suggs, there's some other really good names yeah, in here, I, but I, you're right. I, I really like I really like Suggs. I think
0: he's a good player. But if but nobody's better than Cade Cunningham right now. Cade Cunningham can come into the league and take over a team. He's that good. And, and hopefully that team is going to be the Rockets, right? Um, well, well we, we've been lucky before. We got lucky. We moved all the way down when they changed us. You know, they changed the draft system because of Ray Patterson and the Rockets. Because of the Rockets back-to-back got, coin flips. Yeah, because <laughs> of the coin flips. So they said, let's get rid of that. And then we got lucky on the ping-pong balls
1: and got Yao Ming. So maybe we can get lucky again. Hopefully, hopefully. Now, last one here, Bill, before we let you go. But, you know, you've been through the ups and the downs of this franchise for 40 years. And granted, there's been a lot more good than bad across that 40 years. But is there anything you'd like to say to the fans as we go through, you know, one of these transformative transformative stretches in Rockets history? Yeah, be patient
0: because now's the time to be patient then be when the Rockets put this franchise back together again in a couple of years, then be, then go out and have fun and celebrate it because you don't know how long it's going to last. It's cyclical, folks. When I came into the league in 1980, my first season, what happened? Rockets, with a 40-42 record, got all the way to the NBA finals and played the Boston Celtics. And I'm thinking to myself, "Well, oh, this is the easiest job in America. I mean, how can – you get your first year you go to the NBA finals with a team that didn't even finish 500 that team played up until Moses Malone. And then we only won 14 games in 83, you know, an 82 and 83. We won only 14 games. We reloaded with S- Sampson and Elijah On We were back into the NBA finals in 1986. We re- reloaded again with a got back to back championships, in 94 and 95. So you see where I'm going with this. Then it was Katina Mobley and it was Steve Francis and you had to remake the team uh, through them and that was those were some hard times. And then we got lucky and, and got Harden and built around Harden. So you're up and down and up and down. People forget the Lakers went through four or five really tough years here recently uh, before you know, Kobe wasn't on some great teams there at the end of his career in L.A. They really struggled. Look how long it's taken the Knicks. They were once a a proud franchise in the 70s. They've fallen on hard times. The Celtics, back on hard times a little bit right now. So all of these franchises ebb and flow. And here in Houston, you got to be positive. You can't be negative. We've got some great fans in Houston, but some of them, Tend to be on the negative side sometime and you've got to realize that you can't stay at the top forever and we will be back again we'll be back just as strong as we've ever been because we've got good people in place
1: bill thank you so much for taking the time to be here with us today this has been an amazing show getting to getting to know you getting some insights some great stories i really appreciate you taking the time jackson it's always a pleasure i've made a new friend I appreciate it. Likewise, Bill. Thank you so much. For today's episode, that is going to do it. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back right here at Locked on Rockets, your daily podcast home for everything Houston Rockets basketball.